Welcome, once again, to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. I'm Manning. And I'm Liz. We have finished the Discworld novels. We've done all 41 of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. So we figured just like for this finale, going to do it a little bit freeform. We're just going to go through all of the books, quick summary, what we remember. And at the end, we'll probably do some broader character discussions, general themes and things, and pick a top five each. Sound good? Mm-hmm. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> All right, so the first one, The Color of Magic, published in 1983. So actually, Liz, sorry to spring this on you, but like, do you mind seeing what you remember about these first, since you're the newcomer to the series? Yeah, um, okay, let's see. The Color of Magic stars Rincewind. It is the first Discworld book, Avi. Um, I am completely blanking on the secondary character's name in this book, but I remember he has glasses. Two Flower. Two Flower. Yeah, that's right. And I remember this one's kind of weird because it wasn't necessarily like a big central plot. It was kind of more like three little plots. And the only one I remember is the one where it's like very much inspired by like old fantasy stuff where like everybody's wearing like way not enough clothes. <laughs> yeah, The Color of Magic featured Two Flower, the Discworld's first tourist, come to the city of Ankh-Morpork as the gateway to the rest of the Discworld from his homeland, the Agatian Empire. And yeah, yeah the uh, I think the one you're ta- thinking about there was the one with the dragons. That sounds right. <laughs> there was the subplot about how their adventures were basically the Discworld gods playing D&D. <laughs> oh yeah, which I had completely forgotten about, but that's like kind of a thing that comes up in later books too. That never really manifested in a way that was super satisfying to me, but like... <laughs> no, it's more just like, ooh, here's like a fun little bit of world building spice just for you to like think about. <laughs> Before the dragons, there was the Temple of Belshanharath, which was like the Call of Cthulhu style encounter, mm-hmm. which... Also included just like a brief aside where Rincewind got kidnapped by Dryads, who I think could have been just like a bigger part of of the later books. Like, imagine if you will, a Dryad oxygen bar in Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> yeah, I had like completely forgot about that. I think there's also something with Beth at the end of the book but I might be mixing that up with a later Rincewind book. Um, I think so, yeah. Okay, so yeah, never mind, <laughs> but... So yeah, then was the Wurmberg, where uh, the, like, ruling family had the power to imagine dragons. Mm. Presumably because magic there is radioactive. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> then they got lost in the ocean and taken to the island kingdom of Krull, where they snuck onto a spaceship, basically, and, like, the story ended with them plummeting off the edge of the Discworld. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I completely forgot about that. So, yeah, that one, I think, is better than a lot of people give it credit for. Yeah, I remember, like, not hating it. Like, it was funny, and it, like, it very much felt like how I 
have heard Discworld described as like it's fantasy satire. And yeah, like I, I think that hits the nail on the head. But I think just compared to some of the later books, it feels underwhelming. But it's not like a bad book. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't have a whole lot of like super standout lines that I think about a lot the way that certain later ones will get to do. But it's like fun and the ideas are engaging and like silly. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think it's a completely serviceable like first book in this series. So then three years later, we got the follow-up, The Light Fantastic. Yeah, the only thing I remember about this one is that it includes Rincewind, and there's something about the, like, octarine light, and that is literally it. (laughs) Yes. I think it was uh, mentioned a couple times in the first book that Rincewind has one of the eight spells of the octavo, which is, like, the book from which the spells that created the universe were read. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is supposed to be why he is no good at magic. Yeah, I had, like, completely forgot about that, but, like, I wish I remembered that in later books because, like, that's such an interesting character detail to be like, he's not, like, just bad at magic because he's bad at magic. He's bad at magic because of this very specific reason. Yeah, well, like, at the end of that book, he did get it out of his head. (laughs) Just, like, the other spells of the Octavo moved the Discworld slightly to catch Rincewind and, by extension, Two Flower. (laughs) And then sort of guided Rincewind back to Ankh-Morpork so that he could be there to say the spells like, the spell that's in his head at the right time. Mm-hmm. This one actually introduces the first villain of the Discworld stories in Trimon. Oh, gosh. That, like, is completely unfamiliar to me at this point. Yeah. Well, like, he didn't survive the story. <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, did not have a long run. No. Like, most of the Discworld villains don't. But yeah, Trimon, like, was an evil wizard who also just wanted the wizards to be organized. Oh, yeah, because that was, like, hard when the wizards were, like, backstabbing each other left and right. He wanted them to be, like, a very more, like, efficient bureaucratic organization. Mm-hmm. The horror. <laughs> and he murdered a bunch of people to do it. Like, that is that is worth commenting on, even though it's kind of standard operating procedure for wizards. Yeah, it's like he is a bad guy. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, that's also where we first met Cohen the Barbarian, who, I'm just going to say, it probably should not have been a recurring character. <laughs> no, he's, he's not a, a character based on a joke that has a lot of legs. Yeah, that's actually also the book where... Uh, we first get a glimpse into Death's realm, because, like, Death was a character in The Color of Magic, but, like, this one, he has, like, an actual very important appearance, mm-hmm. including a character who we will meet properly in just a couple books. But yeah, again, fine. A little bit less whimsical and, like, already kind of dropping a lot of the, like, fantasy parodies of the first book, obviously Cohen himself is like a direct parody of Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, but it's definitely like getting less, we're making fun of the silly fantasy worlds and kind of becoming a silly fantasy world. A sillier fantasy world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then the next year, 1987, we had Equal Rights, the first in the Witches series. Yeah, this one I actually remember really well, and I think that's a testament to how much I liked it, but it's where we meet Granny Weatherwax and 
Escarina, whose name I've last name I've completely forgotten. Smith. Smith. I was like, that's what I had in my head, but I was like, no, that's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about Esk like is born with a staff or finds it or something, but it's a wizard's staff. And so she decides she wants to be a wizard. And so the book is Granny Weatherwax like escorting her to Elkmorepork to the Unseen University. The wizard Drum Billet is the one who passes on his staff to the eighth child of an eighth son. Because eight is a important magical number on the Discworld. Because like because Terry Pratchett loves computer stuff. As, <laughs> as well as it's like trying to fantasy that like seven being the magical number. Yeah. Esk being a girl. This proves that like Harry Potter did not invent witches and wizards being gendered magical roles. No. Yeah. That's like, uh, I'm not entirely sure where that's originated, but that's like a fairly like settled thing in a lot of fantasy as much as like I've read. And it's a weird thing. Yeah. And it's like, who even really cares, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like really splitting hairs here. It's not just that Escarina wants to be a wizard. It's that she wants all of magic, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, also learns the value of not doing magic. Oh, yeah. Because like, during the story, she meets a, a young wizard, Simon, who's like brilliant. And some of his magical experiments sent him into the dungeon dimensions, which is full of eldritch horrors. And she goes in after him. And just, like, realizes that they feed off of magic. And so deliberately not using magic is how you scare them off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember a lot about, like, Esk learning how to take, like, the best parts of being a witch and the best parts of being a wizard. And figuring out how to, like, meld those together. Yeah, which honestly just feels very much, like, saying it now like a message about the gender binary mm -hmm. and like gender roles and things right because like the trick is not really to have just witchcraft or just wizardry it is to have the option of choosing one or the other or both or neither yeah i remember i, I like and i think part of why i like this book so much is because despite the fact it's not necessarily getting super deeply into like the politics of gender it's very much exploring, like, the theory and, like, philosophy around it. And, like, it's just super fascinating. And considering when this book was published and the tropes of fantasy in general, it felt really novel to me. Yeah. I would hold up Equal Rights as just, like, my personal pick for the best starting point, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. I think that's totally fair. People say that the Discworld series doesn't really get good until Guards Guards. But I think Equal Rights really holds up and is my personal pick for, like, the best story to animate into a movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, like, I, I don't think I've seen people talk about Equal Rights enough, but I think it's a great book. So from there, same year, this is where Terry Pratchett just, like, starts revving into high gear. Yeah. And, like, just taking off the brakes, Mort, the first one to focus on death as a character, published in 1987. Yeah, this is the one, this is definitely one where I have no names, but, um... I'll give you a hint. One one is in the title. Okay. <laughs> I think this is the one where death is looking for an apprentice whose name... I'm gonna just take a random stab in the dark and guess is Mort? 
Oh, so close. His name is actually John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, common mistake, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But I remember this is where we see Mort escorts a witch who dies. And that's kind of, I think, the extent of what I remember about this book. (laughs) The plot is like totally gone. But I do remember the scene where he talks to the witch. (laughs) Yeah, that is a good scene, even if that is kind of a fairly minor in the actual story. (laughs) Yeah, I just remember liking it a lot. (laughs) So this plot line is that Mort gets taken on as apprentice by Death and meets Death's daughter, Isabel, as well as Death's manservant, Alfred. And while just like out on the job, Mort refuses to reap the Queen of Stolat, Kelly, and just like that sets off just like this historical causation implosion. So Mort is just trying to figure out a way to keep Kelly alive, and Kelly is just trying to stay alive and present in the world, and eventually Mort and Death have to have a duel to figure out who gets to stay Death. And eventually, Mort and Isabel go to live in the mortal world and get married. And Queen Kelly is allowed to stay alive. Yeah, I remember, like, not hating this book. (laughs) But (laughs) I've just, like, totally forgotten it at this point. I think I've just, like, we've read better books with death in it that those have completely overwritten, like, those memories of it. And I think this one also just does introduce... Death is one of the best characters of the Discworld. I think, like, uh, definitely a fan favorite, right? Oh, yeah, totally. You're right that I think we have read better ones with Death. I really appreciate this one for all the groundwork it laid and, like, the character building it did. Yeah. And also just, like, the major ideas that permeated the rest of the series were very much um, planted or, like, began to sprout here. Yeah, and it's like, I don't dislike more. <laughs> Let me, like, clarify that. Because <laughs> we get much further into the series before there's any books where, are, like, not the biggest fan of them. But I just think there's so many books and there's so many that I, like, really love that this one that I'm like, yeah, this is an all right book is just kind of like, I don't know, my brain has moved on to other things. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to 1988, we have Sorcery. Yeah, I remember this one has wizards. Mm -hmm. I think that's where that begins and ends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember this is one where I was like, I had some weird busy stuff going on in my life at that moment. And so I was not on this episode. And I think I just like was so scatterbrained while reading it that all of that is completely gone. Reasonable. In Sorcery, we learned that because wizards are all the eighth sons of eighth sons, if a wizard has eight sons, that eighth son is a sorcerer who's a source of magic. Mm. Just because puns. Yeah. (laughs) They are a form of humor that Terry Pratchett loves to indulge in and just like build from. Yeah. That sorcerer named Coin comes to Ankh-Morpork and just like takes over the wizard university. uh, Starts to bring about a new age of magic, which Rincewind realizes will destroy the Discworld. Mm -hmm. And so he basically like talks to Coin and then just like the magic as well as Coin's father being who's like trapped in his staff and like trying to manipulate his son like leads to a struggle that plunges the three of them into the dungeon dimensions and coin escapes but rincewind stays behind to protect him because like 
the Dungeon Dimension monsters love to eat magic, and coin is just like a buffet for them. <laughs> yeah, it's like straight pure magic. Oh yeah, and also there's a couple other characters we meet, including a daughter of Cohen the Barbarian, Conina, whose name I think was not the best choice because it's so similar to coin. Yeah, that gets uh, a little muddy. <laughs> You have like Cohen and Coin and Conina in the same book. Yeah, and like a large part of the book is Rinswind taking the Archchancellor's hat, which is like the unofficial symbol of just like being the ruler of all wizards, away from Ankh Pork so that Coin can't get it. And then the hat turns out to not really factor in that much into the plot. <laughs> just wow, that was a cool idea. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Speaking of, next up, Weird Sisters. And this is the podcast <laughs> debuted in 2019. It's also yeah. a book. It was published in 1988. Yeah, this one has Granny Weatherwax and oh my gosh, wow. It has Magrat and it has, oh my gosh, why am I forgetting her name? I know it. <laughs> she was in the last book. I know. <laughs> Nanny Og. <laughs> I had to think about the cookbook. <laughs> But, oh gosh, I don't know if I really remember the plot at all for this one. So, this is the where the Witches series begins in proper. The plot's functionally similar to, in many ways, to Macbeth. Oh gosh, yeah. Isn't this the one where it has um, some nobleman who, like, washes his hands bloody or something? Yes. Gosh, yeah, that part I remember. Yeah. So it takes place in the kingdom of Lanker just after the assassination of the old king and the subsequent rise to power of the new Duke Felment and his wife, the Duchess. Yeah, it's a, a graphic thing that has stuck with me for many years. And this is one of the first ones where I did uh, fun effects things on the podcast. <laughs> I did that whole elaborate description of Granny Weatherwax moving the kingdom of Lanker through time to make it oh, so that... Yeah. The true heir to the throne would be old enough to take it back from the duke. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they eventually find out that the king's fool is a son of the monarchs. We later find out that he's actually the queen's son, but not the king's. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, he shouldn't be allowed to ascend to the throne, but the true heir doesn't want to. And, like, nobody needs to know that he's not the king's son. Yeah, it's like, let's just fudge the details here a little bit. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, he and Magrat get together, and they're adorable dorks. <laughs> I think that's an accurate way to describe them, yeah. <laughs> Moving onwardly to 1989, we have Pyramids. Yeah, this one I remember is a standalone book. I have nobody's names, <laughs> but I think it takes place in Jelly Baby. Yes, you're absolutely correct on that one. <laughs> and I think the main character is an assassin. You're two for two on details there. <laughs> They're just very specific and nothing I can attach to any other books. <laughs> <laughs> so the story for this one is that the the prince of the kingdom of Jelly Baby, which is the Discworld equivalent of just like all the ancient Egypt tropes. His name is Tepic and he goes to the Ankh-Morpork Guild of Assassins to learn a trade, basically. His father passes away, and he has to return home to ascend to the throne and builds his father the largest pyramid yet constructed, which ends up causing a rift in the space-time continuum, plunging the entire country into just like a pocket universe. 
Oh, yeah. And so he, a servant girl who we later learn is his cousin, and a, and a camel who are, of course, all mathematical geniuses, <laughs> have to rescue the kingdom from the relentless determinism of the high priest Dios. Oh, yeah. Who it turns out has been trapped in a stable time loop and gets sent back to the ancient past to found the country of Jelly Baby in the first place. <laughs> this one's got some cool ideas that I've like just completely forgotten about. And hey, it is accurate at least that pyramids do warp space-time because they're very dense structures and like mass affects just like the universe around it and the flow of time. Yeah. It is just kind of a silly one, but I like I remember it fondly at least. Yeah, I remember it being really stylish. And I think it definitely got overshadowed by the next book in the series, Guards Guards, published in 1989. Yeah, this is the first Guards book where we meet uh, Sam Vimes and the bunch. It's where Carrot comes to the city. I don't think I actually have any of the plot otherwise. The plot centers around a conspiracy to unseat the current ruler of the city, Lord Vetinari who was, like, kind of a presence in the other books, but, like, definitely comes into his own here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His secretary, we eventually learn, steals a magic book about summoning dragons and uses that to create a threat that he plans to use as the cover for bringing in the quote-unquote rightful king of Ankh-Morpork. Pork who's just like a, a fool that he's just like hired to play the part. Yeah, now I remember the end of this book. <laughs> yeah, and it, it does turn out that Carrot is the actual heir to the throne, but be because he meets Captain Samuel Vimes, who hates the monarchy and just like tells Carrot a lot of stuff about just like how the world is unfair and like should be improved and everything, Carrot decides mm -hmm. to just like serve the people as a police officer. Yeah, I think this is where he's at is like most himbo form yes <laughs> yeah a lot of recurring characters get introduced in this one obviously samuel vimes who's definitely one of those characters who is sort of synonymous with the series yeah i remember this one felt really big when we got to it it almost felt like the terry project knew uh, this was going to be a like major recurring series yeah, so he did, like, the legwork to get it set up. The dragon breaks free of the summoning spell and just, like, goes on a rampage. Meanwhile, Vimes meets Lady Sybil Ramkin, who breeds swamp dragons, which are just, like, utterly pathetic little creatures. Mm -hmm. And one of her swamp dragons, Errol, meets and challenges and mates with the dragon, and they go off into space together. Obviously, the classic ending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, Guards, Guards, classic Discworld book. Very cool, very entertaining. Gets dark in some places, gets very funny in others. Mm -hmm. Has one of the many Dirty Harry references. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> All right, we move on to 1990 with Eric. I think this is a Rincewind book, isn't it? Yep. This is the one where there's some youngish boy who gets into some nonsense and I think he makes a bargain with a demon and ends up in hell and hell is being run like your worst nightmare of a corporate job. <laughs> and then 
there's a part at the end where they like go either so far into the future or so far into the past they're like at the birth of the universe with the person who is like creating it yep a little bit out of order there but you're you're accurate <laughs> rincewind at the end of sorcery was in the dungeon dimensions and the titular character eric tries to summon a demon to make deals with and gets rincewind instead oh yeah yeah <laughs> And Eric wants to marry the most beautiful woman in the world, be king of the world, and live forever. Might have gotten those in the wrong order, but anyway. (laughs) So through mysterious means that they don't yet understand, uh, they wound up in basically the Discworld equivalent of the Trojan War to meet the equivalent of Helen of Troy, who is no longer conventionally beautiful because she's just like gone to seed after 10 years of being a prisoner of war. They get transported to a jungle to be sacrificed in a ritual that the natives call making them the king of the world. And then, yes, that that part does happen that they get sent to the beginning of the universe to live forever. And it turns out that all life on the Discworld originated with Rincewind's egg and crest sandwich. When he drops it in a pond. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think, actually, during that podcast episode, I mentioned some options for who I would want to play the creator in an adaptation of that story. I think who I said was either a good Terry Pratchett impersonator or Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. I would also accept Rihanna Pratchett. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> another very meta option (laughs) (laughs) and yes then they go to hell and the current ruler of hell is very much like Trimon from the light fantastic and just like wants everything to be like a very organized and efficient thing and he is like being undercut by one of his demons and the story ends without really a lot of fanfare This is one I did not really care for very much, as you could probably tell by my description. (laughs) Yeah, I remember it feeling kind of messy. Yeah, and like that is largely because it was originally written to be a graphic novel, or like an illustrated story. Mm-hmm. With a lot of and with a lot of Josh Kirby's good but kind of lumpy (laughs) illustrations. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like the language and stuff is good. But, like, this definitely highlights a problem we have with, like, most of the books in the series being that, like, the structure is not great. Yeah. It's, like, especially coming out of, like, Guards Guards, I think it uh, doesn't shine. But it means that we got Rincewind out of the dungeon dimensions, so he he can appear in more books, which is a good thing, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's critical to the plot of a few other ones. Yeah. That's something. Moving onwardly, still in 1990, we have Moving Pictures. Yeah, this one has the plot where the cameras with the imps in them, like, evolve and they get them to be at a point where they can film movies, like, old school kinds of movies with them. So, a, like, little fake Hollywood pops up overnight, basically, because people are compelled by, like, the overwhelming magic of movies and are just desperate to be a part of it. And... There's a talking dog in it. <laughs> and the end of the book is where like the amount of movies kind of hits a critical mass and opens a portal to the dungeon dimension. And I remember a scene in a sunken theater towards the end of the book, but 
I don't remember how any of it resolves or anybody's names. <laughs> oh, the dog's name is Gaspode. Yes, he's a recurring character. Yeah, that one I got. <laughs> yeah, well done there. I, it's weird to think about which books I remember the characters and which books I remember the plots, but basically I have, I, there's no books where I have both. <laughs> uh, the main character is a is a student at Unseen University, Victor Tugglebend, and he goes to the Holy Wood to be an actor and meets Ginger, and they have very good acting chemistry, even though they don't like each other much at first. Mm-hmm. And yes, the magic of movies does very much fuse into the magic of the dungeon dimensions. There's a scene where a giant Ginger kidnaps the ape librarian of the university to climb the tallest tower in just like a reversal of King Kong. Yeah. <laughs> They do defeat the underwater theater monsters by animating a statue of an Oscar to act as a guardian. Huh. Okay. Cool. Yeah. This one, like, has, I remember it having, like, some funny bits. Yeah. Like, it's conceptually just, it's it's got a lot of good going for it, but <laughs> it kind of gets lost in the expanse of the Discworld because it's a little bit more one-off by nature. But I remember really liking it. It does begin, I think, a, a motif that Terry Pratchett loves playing with in the series. Round world technology and such being introduced into the Discworld. In this book, it is an antagonist, but I think they do get more interesting when the innovations aren't necessarily malevolent. Yeah, they're just like a piece of the world. Yeah, so moving on, 1991, we have a Reaper Man. This one is the one where... Death is forced into retirement by the auditors, I think. And he spends the book kind of interacting with humanity. Um, and yeah, I think that's all I have for that one. Yep, you're on the money there. Like I remember a scene very vividly of him like sharpening his scythe to a point where it can like split space time or something. Yeah. But like otherwise, I don't know. <laughs> he wears a like farmer's hat on the cover of the book. <laughs> he goes to work as a farmhand for the elderly and cynical Miss Flitworth. Mm -hmm. And there's also a B-plot where the wizard Windle Poons dies and is not able to pass to the afterlife because death is away. So he's just like kind of a zombie. And this is where we meet Reg Shu, recurring character who doesn't, I think, get used very well in most of the stories he's in. <laughs> he's present. Gosh, is this the book that ends with the mall that collapses in on itself? Yes. <laughs> I've like had that I've thought about that scene at some point in their like near past. And what book was that attached to? When did a <laughs> mall come up? <laughs> And like also during this story, all of the different things that can die briefly get their own individual death. And the only one that survives past the end of the story is the death of rats. Oh, yeah. It just becomes death prime's sidekick, more or less. And yeah, he has that huge confrontation with the new death who like wears a crown and eventually takes over a combine harvester versus a scythe. <laughs> and our death wins and then goes to meet the like multiversal god of death, who's like the universe man, size of the entire universe man. <laughs> and who has that one line that takes up an entire page. Oh, yeah. Our death gets to uh, go back to his normal job. It was a pretty fun one, although I do 
kind of wish that there had been more acknowledgement of Mort and Isabel from Mort. Because, like, Death has a family, and he doesn't even mm-hmm. go to visit them that we see. Yeah, like, Mort and Isabel definitely kind of get, get forgotten about for a few more books, at least. Um, but I remember this is the book that, like, really endeared me to Death. Like, he's a neat character in Mort, but this is where he feels very, like, special. And I think it also plays on, or it builds on something that was played with a little bit in Mort which is that Death wants to understand humanity and to be more human, even if he doesn't admit that last part to anyone, including himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From there, still in 1991, we have Witches Abroad. This is the one where the weird sisters go on a road trip. I think it's because Nanny Og like gets money from a publisher. No, that's a different one. Okay. They go abroad for some reason and they end up in a place that is very clearly like traditional fairy tale-esque inspired. And they have a showdown with Granny Weatherwax's sister. Yeah, Magrat gets appointed fairy godmother and... They have to go rescue a girl, Emberella, <laughs> who is being forced into the role of Cinderella by, by Granny Wethmax's twin sister. Mm-hmm. She thinks of herself as the good twin because she's imposing these fairy tale rules onto a the country of Genua. Genua itself is more New Orleans inspired. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically just she's building Disney World there. I mean, they're both built on swamps. Yes. (laughs) And this is, I think, the first one in the Witches series where we get this glimpse into Magrat having this, like, iron core. Mm -hmm. Which I think was touched on a little bit in Weird Sisters, but, like, not really. Like, her plotline in that was more about her burgeoning romance with Ferenc. Yeah, I remember, like, she definitely starts off as the books describe her as a wet hen. But she really comes into her own without having to necessarily like, sacrifice the rest of what makes her her as a character. Yeah. But yeah, uh, this one, pretty good. Fairly fun. Like, not the best witches book and, like, definitely not the best Discworld book, but, like, had some good moments. Yeah, I don't think it's, like, a, a standout among some of the others, but it was solid. Definitely had some good anti-colonialist messages in there. Mm-hmm. Although, like, could have probably used a little bit less of, like, the not quite appropriation, but, like, weird representation of hoodoo. Yeah, that's a, an issue that is not limited to this book. Moving onwardly, we have Small Gods, published in 1992. I definitely don't have any names for this one. <laughs> um, but this is one where a young boy who works at a temple for the religion he follows ends up meeting a turtle who claims to be a god. And the book is their journey together, which includes like many grueling tasks where this young boy, maybe he's a young man, I don't know, <laughs> kind of like overthrows the violent religion he's a part of and starts a new religion based around this god that has been with him the whole time. You've got um, the idea of it. Mm -hmm. It is fairly important that the tortoise is actually his god, Om. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because Om as a god notoriously is like does not speak to his followers, like less so than any of the other gods, it seems like. That's actually more the way the religion is framed when it pops back up in later books. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Omniism in this story is very much a representation of Inquisition-era Christianity. Yeah. 
and just like this concept that is more prominent in the West than in a lot of other cultures, but like kind of gets attributed to being a universal aspect of religion is just like this mm -hmm. idea of blind adherence to the faith and just like total obedience to the church. Yeah. Which is not really a religious problem so much as it is an institution and author authoritarianism problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like any organization can become completely corrupt and self-serving beyond whatever original purpose it served. Yeah. I think that's fair. But yeah, and of course it introduced the line that we adopted into our sign-off, The Turtle Moves, mm -hmm. which is also the name of a different Discworld podcast. <laughs> it seems appropriate. <laughs> yeah, it's a good name. But yeah, um, the main character, Brutha, he has a photographic memory, mm. which is very cool because he at one point uses that to just like save a bunch of books from the Discworld equivalent of the Library of Alexandria. Mm. Before the bishops of his faith can burn it down. Yeah, I remember there's like a lot of like cool ideas in this book. And I do think it delves really deeply into like philosophy of religion and belief. It's just, it's been a long time since we read some of these books. Like <laughs> yeah. years. And, and it's like, I, I remember this one being like feeling really stand out when we got to it. But like, this is like almost 30 books ago. Yeah. Because, like, this is the 13th book, so this was a while ago. Yeah, I distinctly remember the climax of the story where Brutha faces down the evil head of the organization, Vorbis. And mm -hmm. Vorbis has Brutha tied to a torture device, not un-Jesus-like. And Om gets picked up by an eagle who's going to try and eat him. And then Om bites the eagle on the cloaca and is like, has it drop him onto Vorbis. And, like, that just, like, makes all of the crowd in attendance really believe in Alm. So he becomes super powerful. Yeah. And, yeah, at the end, Brutha becomes head of the church and just, like, facilitates peace with all of the church's many, many enemies at that point. <laughs> Definitely one of my personal favorites. Yeah, I think it's, like, uh, one of the very excellent standout, like, standalone books. All right, so next up, we return to the witches with Lords and Ladies. Yeah, this one is where the witches fight the fairies for the first time and includes the very good paragraph which has the line that the fairies are terrible because they inspire terror and it's where magrat first dons the suit of armor of the actually not entirely true former hero of a, a warrior queen ages long past and i think she just punches the fairy queen i think that's how <laughs> That is resolved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I want to see if I can find the quote, because it's a good one. Mm -hmm. Elves are wonderful. They provoke wonder. Elves are marvelous. They cause marvels. Elves are fantastic. They create fantasies. Elves are glamorous. They project glamour. Elves are enchanting. They weave enchantments. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. The thing about words is that meanings can twist just like a snake. And if you want to find snakes, look for them behind words that have changed their meaning. No one ever said elves are nice. Elves are bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that paragraph does so much to capture like the essence of what the elves are. They're like these beautiful and magical and very like fantastical creatures. And they are like wrought into their very core. Yes, because they have the magical ability to manipulate minds. 
And so they just project themselves as being the best it is possible to be. Yeah. Very fun. Very fun story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely some of the best Discworld villains. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because it is all about use of fantasy tropes. Elves in popular culture, I think, have been sort of codified into the Tolkien-esque better-than-you people who are just, Mm -hmm. like, beautiful and serene and know everything, don't age, and, like, can do all this stuff, and... This book just sort of combines that with the courts, as we said on the show. Mm -hmm. Very much the capricious, often terrifically dangerous nature of supernatural beings. Yeah. Plunging along, they go to 1993 with Men at Arms. This is another watch book. It's definitely one where the specifics of the plot are have escaped me. So while the Watch is introducing some new recruits, including Detritus the Troll, Cuddy the Dwarf, and Angua von Überwald the Werewolf, who her recurring joke is that a lot of a lot of people think that she's there to represent women in the Watch, but she's actually there as like an honorary undead. <laughs> they investigate a series of murders relating to the first gun that has ever been invented on the Discworld. Oh, yeah. Which has an agenda of its own. More so, I think, than the movies or the mall. I do really enjoy the gun being the villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in this book, it really captures this idea around like violence and power. Mm-hmm. Like, I-, I think it's an excellent choice. It feels really foreboding because like, the gun is new to the Discworld, but it is unfortunately not new to many of us in some very poor and tragic ways. Yeah. Um, so we know the power of it better than the characters do. And so we know how dangerous it can really be. I feel like it might be kind of undercut a little bit by how when Angua gets shot by it, it's revealed that even the gun can't kill a werewolf because it's not silver. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they do take it away from the person who was using it, who did want to use it to get Carrot onto the throne of Ankh-Morpork. Pork. Mm-hmm. Like, it was good. It was a good story. Yeah. And, like, Cuddy the dwarf died, and that was sad because he and Detritus were, like, butting heads because Discworld trolls are made of stone and dwarfs mine stone, which is, I think, a very interesting difference from the classic elves hating dwarves, because obviously there's a different thing going on with elves in the Discworld. Yeah, yeah. It it inspires a a new different sort of conflict. Yeah, a good stepping stone along the arc of the City Watch stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think basically like all of the Watch books rank from like good to great. In general, I think they're pretty strong books and i think they cover a lot more of the political socio-cultural discussions of our world that pratchett has through the disc world and i think you know despite their flaws in general i think they do some of the best work of exemplifying the series constant like compassion towards the characters and for people in general mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> One thing that we didn't mention in this episode, which was pointed out by, I want to say, superfan Docket, mm-hmm. whose comments have been great. Cuddy made Detritus a cooling hat because it's shown in this story that the troll brains being silicon-based are susceptible to change from temperatures. They operate better at 
cooler temperatures because they're basically computer brains. Mm-hmm. Very it's cute. A, a good little plot thing. It especially shows a lot about these characters' relationship to each other at this point. Oh, yeah, I believe this book is also the one where we get the Vimes boots theory of economic unfairness. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps an overstatement of... I think that attributes um, a little bit more to spending on how the rich stay rich when it's really more about exploitation. <laughs> yeah, I think what that like theory and saying does is like really highlight a part of how like capitalism in general like punishes people for being poor. Yes. It's like if you are rich, the system doesn't want to make you suffer for that. So it's like, yeah, spend money and you're going to be good. And it's easier just to not spend a lot of money. But like, if you're poor, how dare you? Yeah. Sucks to suck, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Moving right along, we head to 1994 with soul music. I remember this one feeling very silly at the time, <laughs> but it's a death book. And I think it's the first one where we get introduced to Death's granddaughter, Susan. Yeah, that's a really obvious name. Like, <laughs> But in the rest of the disc world, rock and roll music is like becoming a thing. And in true disc world fashion, there's some magic attached to that. M- music with rocks in it, I think is how they put it in the book. Yes, music with rocks yeah. in. <laughs> but I like the specifics of the plot elude me, and I think it's because as I'm trying to piece it together, it felt a little weird when we read it. Yeah, that's fair. The plot of that one is that before that book starts, Mort and Isabel died in a carriage accident while Susan was at boarding school. And Death, his subplot in this story is that he's just like experiencing grief for the first real time and susan has to step up and take over the role while he is just like away Mm -hmm. meanwhile the concept of rock and roll music infects the mind of young musician buddy who forms a band with a dwarf and a troll and they go on tour and it's like everyone goes crazy for it and Mm -hmm. like and so death and susan have to go stop it It's pretty Um, good. This is one that I was contemplating putting in my top five, not necessarily because like it's, I think, one of the greatest books in the series, but because it has so many things that are just very notable to me in like hindsight that I think it's very fun. Yeah, I think the best part of this book is just the introduction of Susan as a character. And like Death's vignettes where he's just like trying to cope with his grief. Mm Mm-hmm. Or where he's struggling with his grief. I think that's kind of like where this book succeeds is like dealing with the concept of grief. And then there's like silly rock and roll music stuff. (laughs) All right. Still in 1994. Interesting times. This is the newspaper one, right? No. Oh gosh, then I have no idea what this one is. (laughs) So this one is, we're back with Rincewind and he gets sent to the Agatian Empire, where he reunites with Two Flower, and also with Cohen. Yeah. And also with a bunch of more than a little bit racist jokes about Chinese and Japanese culture. Yeah, I don't think this one, like, holds up to the tests of time. 
No, definitely. Like, I think we were probably a little bit too generous with it in our podcast, but also just like, if we had just focused on how problematic that book was, like, we wouldn't have been able to say anything else, Yeah, really. I think, like, the issues it has were so glaring and obvious that it was like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't think we got to explain that one. <laughs> Yeah, there's other stuff going on in the book, too. So uh, there's a lot more to unpack there than we have time to and would be (laughs) interesting in podcasts. So like Two Flower wrote a book uh, about his experience as a tourist, which was pretty cool. And also Cohen the Barbarian becomes Genghis Cohen and takes over the Agatine Empire, which is kind of Mm -hmm. fun. And also Rincewind puts on some magic armor that lets him control a terracotta army with the controls from the game Lemmings. (laughs) And also we get a a return to the gods playing games with the universe of especially the lady and her butterflies with the fractal wings. Because the butterflies can bend luck because with the wings being fractals, they have technically infinite circumference. (laughs) Yeah. And also, one of several recurring characters we haven't really talked about, the luggage. It gets to go to its homeland and have a little family, which we don't want to question how that happens. It just does. (laughs) Yeah, like that's just another thing we don't have time for. (laughs) And Rincewind, I think, has like, Rincewind interacts with Two Flowers' daughters. And just like, it's unclear if there's like romantic chemistry going Mm -hmm. on there. I choose to not think about yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's a wise choice. <laughs> it was just kind of weird how Two Flower had a family that he never mentioned in the first two books. <laughs> yeah. And like also that he didn't bring them along on the he trip. He only has enough money for one person to take a worldwide vacation. <laughs> he, he thinks he only does. He actually had like tons of money. That was a <laughs> major joke. But yeah. So, jumping ahead to 1995 with Masquerade. Yeah, this is the one where Agnes goes to the opera house in Ankh-Morpork, and it's basically Phantom of the Opera from there. We should probably explain who Agnes is. Oh, yeah. She was introduced in Lords and Ladies as, like, kind of a junior witch, but, like, she decided in this story that she doesn't want to pursue witchcraft and how how it's a kind of a servile position in the community. Not everyone, like, grows up wanting to be, like, a garbage man, for example, but, like, they're an important part of our infrastructure, and, like, without them, where would we be as a society? Yeah, and I think it's, like, especially notable for Agnes's as a character who desperately wants, like, like attention and glamour and like fame or or just like compassion and affection I think to some extent as she's a character who's heavier set and you know and society tells you beautiful women are a certain way and you don't feel that way it does kind of make those things feel extra like enchanting and desirable because it feels like off limits to you Yeah, absolutely. And actually, we do see Agnes contrasted with Christine, who is a conventionally attractive Mm -hmm. woman, who Agnes, like, suspects of being a lot more conniving and manipulative than she presents herself as. It is revealed that the Phantom character is actually two people, one of whom is Walter, the handyman for the opera house, and the other one being the manager who's been embezzling a fortune. Yeah, like, 
I think this one does some interesting things. Um, it, like some of the others, it kind of disappears in the background against some really great Disc World books. And like, I do like Agnes, and mm-hmm. I think that she is pretty cool. But like, I don't feel like Terry Pratchett really uh, knew what he wanted to do yeah. with her. The way that he did with Magma. Yeah, I feel like Agnes was kind of like half an idea, but had like better opportunities that were better done by Magrat and Tiffany. And this is the book that you were thinking of earlier, where Nanny Og publishes a cookbook, The Joy of oh. Snacks, which is combination cookbook and The Joy of Sex. <laughs> Granny Weatherwax gets her a proper share of the revenue. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then Granny Weatherwax spends it all on a glamorous makeover for herself <laughs> uh, to go to the yeah, opera. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but yes. Mm-hmm. And Granny Willex got a very memorable confrontation she had with Death where she played cards with him for the life of a yeah, child. Yeah, like, uh, there were some, like, really cool moments out of this book. I think it's a perfectly serviceable book, you know? It does some interesting things. I think it's pretty entertaining. But, like I said, they're just some, like, really excellent Discworld books, so. Speaking of, we move on to 1996 with Feet of Clay. Yeah, this is another watch book. This is the one where they are investigating a murder where they cannot figure out how it was done. But it was done by a golem who was, I think, basically driven mad by having like too many how the golems work is that you write something on a piece of paper and it goes in their head and then that becomes their like focus um and it had like too many things put into its head and so it like lashed out yeah so yeah this story focuses on the concept of golems which are a thing from jewish folklore clay sculptures animated by a chem for shem and like on the disc world are like very much treated as property because that's how they've been programmed to think of themselves and also they are like very capable and do a lot of like menial work yeah like they're incredibly valuable but not necessarily treated that way and as with most of the watch novels the plot is to unseat lord vetinari this time by poisoning him the like person behind it all is the keeper of like coats of arms for the city dragon king of arms who's a vampire he tries to get Nobby Nobs, the corporal from the watch, who's just like very, very untrustworthy and a little bit skeezy, but like ultimately just kind of harmless, getting him elevated to the position of regent. And Nobby does end up refusing by saying, Vimes would go spare! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is also the one that introduces Cheery Littlebottom. Oh, yeah. An icon. <laughs> Yes, who, despite there being female dwarves in earlier books, is the first female dwarf to present as a mm-hmm. woman. Time shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she's great, and she's not not trans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I think the consensus from people who know what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's like, maybe that word isn't like ever explicitly used, but that, that's like, that's the point, right? <laughs> Yeah. She is a woman, and her culture expects her to present as masculine. Mm -hmm. Or, like, we as humans would interpret as masculine. They as dwarves would just tend to understand as just presenting as a dwarf. Yeah, Yeah, I I remember really liking this one. I think this is one of the watch books that, like, 
does the mystery concept really, really well. And Mm -hmm. there's obviously always some, like, muddy waters with using creatures from a religion's stories as a fictional element in a book written by somebody who does not belong to that faith. That's always tricky. And the problems with, like, using the golems in this book are not exclusive to Terry Pratchett, but, like, representations of golems as a whole in media. But... I think the story still does treat them with a lot of compassion. Yeah, absolutely. And like care and diligent research are like cornerstones of good representation. And like, yeah, yeah, some things just really should be kept to like the culture that they are from. A lot of native beliefs and everything have been appropriated by like white fantasy writers for Mm. different things. And that's just like kind of awful. I think golems have this ubiquity within culture that like they are also just like a known fantasy trope at this point, which does not really excuse that, but it does kind of explain. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling a bit, but I think you get my point. There's no malice in there. And I think that counts for a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's complicated. And I think Pratchett did his best in what he thought was best. Treatment of the golems in Ankh-Mor Pork definitely evokes the treatment of Jewish peoples throughout history. it's, It's a great book, despite those potential problems that it may have. And I am not Jewish, so I cannot, like, really speak on those in super specific ways because, like, I lack the lens to do that, but, you know. But, like, I do really love thinking about the scene where the main golem character, Dorfo, gains autonomy and becomes their own owner, realizing what that means and just, like, choosing to embrace it and also just like pointing out how it is kind of hypocritical of just like the different religions to try and to treat golems as just like not people when like you can't really prove that anyone has a soul necessarily although you kind of can in a universe with magic and ghosts (laughs) and things yeah i mean like the question is philosophically sound it's just uh, maybe ask in the wrong world but yeah, 1996, absolute banger year for the Discworld series because next up is Hogfather. Yeah, this is the Christmas one where death becomes Father Christmas because somebody's kidnapped him. The auditors have hired the Guild of Assassins to ass- inhume the Hogfather. Mm-hmm, yeah. The assassin who does so, Mr. Tea Time, or Teatarme, decides to do so by breaking into the Tooth Fairy's realm using all of the teeth for sympathetic magic to make everyone in the world not believe in the Hogfather, therefore unmaking him. Oh, yeah. Because it was a major part of small gods that we didn't talk about, that on the Discworld, belief is like a very powerful magical force. Something being a widely understood concept and like people knowing it is true does fuel that being true. Yeah. And also there's the great scene where death is the mall Santa and gives the little girl a sword and has that exchange. It's educational. What if she hurts herself? That will be an important lesson. <laughs> yeah, I think this book is kind of iconic in the Discworld as a whole. 
and I mm-hmm. think it's well earned. It's not like super high up on my list of personal favorites, but I do think it is a very solid book. Yeah. And of course, Susan makes a great appearance as, I believe we described her as goth Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah. I think this book really like starts showing off how much Terry Pratchett loves goths. Yeah, it is a running theme. <laughs> Susan ends up defeating Mr. Tea Time. And also we meet uh, Bilius, the god of hangovers. <laughs> In his first and only appearance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like some other characters, um, there's not necessarily a lot to work with on that joke. Uh, there's a C plot as well with the wizards and the head of the university, Mustrum Ridcully, having a nice bath in a horribly designed bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And of course, that great monologue death has at the end where humans need fantasy to be human. To be the place where the falling angel meets the rising Mm -hmm. ape. Yeah, there are a lot of like iconic lines and scenes in this book. Moving right along, we head into 1997 with Jingo. Yeah, this is another watch book. This is the one where there's like political conflict where uh, I'm, I'm looking at a list of all the Discworld books just so I can like keep track of them. And now I think I've gotten it mixed up with the plot of The Last Continent. (laughs) (laughs) A mysterious island, Lesh, has risen out of the sea between Ankh-Morpork and the continent of Clatch, and there's a brewing war between Ankh-Morpork and mainly the Prince Kadram, who is one of many just, like, regional lords in the, like, not-super-great depiction of the Middle East that is, like, a section of the continent Yeah. And so political tensions escalate, and we meet the one of the prince's retainers, 71-hour Ahmed, who ends up kidnapping Angua, and so the rest of the watch have to go after him to get her back. And it ends up being revealed that Ahmed is basically head of the police for the region and like had to lure Sam Vimes there to basically help him stop the war. Yeah. And so Vimes arrests both armies <laughs> and uh, Lord Vetinari brokers a deal with the prince to be signed on Leshp, which then sinks back into the sea, so the deal after Vetinari gets back. So the deal cannot be ratified, but the assembled armies of Clatch are no longer willing to go to war, and so everything goes back to normal, more yeah. or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this one has some good moments with its like political and sociocultural discussions um, around war. It's definitely not one of my favorite watch books, but I think it's uh, all right otherwise. And I think it does also point at least in a progressive direction about war as a concept, how it is not something to be considered glorious. It is hideous and ultimately self-destructive endeavor. Mm, Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, Corporal Nobbs starts cross-dressing in this one, which is okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a thing. Moving on. <laughs> the Last Continent, 1998. This one is about fantasy Australia. Yes. I, it stars Rincewind, right? Yes. He gets launched there after something that the Unseen University is doing goes wrong. And yeah, that's all I got on that one. Yeah. 
And like, there is also a bit where the rest of the wizards of the university meet the god of evolution. And I enjoyed how on our episode about it, I got to introduce you to the concept of carcinization. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which it's weird at this point in my life, like have since that, how often that comes up for one reason or another. (laughs) Listen, all conversations eventually <laughs> turn into conversations about carcinization. <laughs> it's it's a weird, like, paradoxical, like, circles within circles within circles. <laughs> yeah, also it's just, like, confirmation bias, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of just, like, very uh, scattershot Australia parody jokes that are... Mm. Yeah, I don't think it's one of the strongest books. It's fine, Definitely better structured, and I think If Memory Serves better written than Eric and, like, Sorcery, and definitely less problematic than Interesting Times, which is a bar that, like, an ant would have difficulty limboing under. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, like, I don't know. It's definitely on the, like, lower side of the Discworld as a whole if you wanted to, like, rank them all out. So, wow, we've been going for two hours. (laughs) yeah. I wonder if maybe actually we should um, split this up to it as two parts. Yeah, I mean, I think that would make sense. Like, we're really covering a lot of ground here. <laughs> so, surprise, uh, we're <laughs> going to do this as a two-parter and come back next month, I guess, for the proper finale. <laughs> finale, part two, Electric Boogaloo. I think I think it's totally earned. There are 41 books in this series, and this has been multiple years of our lives. I think it's okay if we need to do a two-parter in the finale. Yeah, and like also that will mean that we finish up right near my birthday. So, Aww. you know, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, join us again next month for what will hopefully be the um, actual finale of our <laughs> retrospective. <laughs>